Welcome to the Dublin Bible Talks, midweek Bible talks for workers in Dublin. I'm Cameron Jones. Christian gatherings here in Dublin are generally pretty small, not filled with industry leaders of influence. They meet in rundown buildings and community halls between Pilates and yoga on a Sunday afternoon. If they ever had a prime, they're past it. In a one-off Dublin Bible Talks for Lent, we find Luke 9 gives a glimpse of something more real, the Transfiguration. And please consider joining us live on Wednesdays from your workplace, 1pm Dublin time on Zoom. It's a simple way of identifying as a Christian in your workplace. Simply use the link bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. Friends, come back with me to a time in history and see a man travelling along a road. His only possessions are what he can carry and... He's carrying, he's carrying them as if he's had to move quickly, as if he's had to leave most of his possessions behind. Now he's bruised. He's walking with difficulty. It looks like he's been badly beaten in the last day or so. And he comes into a new village, into our new village, our, and he strikes up a conversation. And he claims, he claims to be the servant of a great and powerful king. Now, as we watch that scene, we start to think, but you are clearly not a king's servant. I mean, where is the retinue? Where are the guards? Where's the finery? Where is the pomp? You haven't washed for a while. Your clothes are dirty. It's really clear that you've been beaten. You're running away from the last person you've come from, the last place you've come from. Tell us about this king, because the evidence seems to suggest that you are not following the right one. Well, says the man, I'm absolutely positive that he's the right one because he himself was beaten and executed by crucifixion. And so I expect my life and death to be similar to his. I mean, you'd start to avoid having a conversation with that person, wouldn't you? People with, eyes, people with ideas like that don't, don't live very long. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus' followers ended up doing. What on earth would make them do something like that? I mean, even today in North Korea or northern Nigeria or in Egypt and places around the world, Christians are treated shamefully for following Jesus. Now, we find that Jesus had told his disciples beforehand that their life would be like that. And what we just read from Luke chapter 9, verse 22 and following, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Up to that point, Luke, the thorough historian who looked up the eyewitnesses and interview, interviewed them to ensure that his writing was accurate about Jesus, he has so far recorded the beginning of Jesus' ministry being filled with great signs. These signs have been showing that Jesus is not just God's great king, but is God himself. I mean, Jesus fed a multitude in a remote place, just like God did in Moses' day. Jesus has stilled the sea, just like God had piled up the waters in Moses' day, rescuing his chosen people from Egypt. Jesus has raised a young girl from the dead, just like God had raised a widow's child in Elijah's day. And yet, Jesus speaks about his betrayal 
and about a horrific and shameful betrayal and death. Maybe, maybe Peter was wrong to say to Jesus, you are the Christ, the King of God. Well, what happens next addresses this issue and actually raises and addresses what might be the most bizarre aspect of Christian belief, an, an aspect that has ended up forming the roots of much of Western culture. Because God in his mercy, by the transfiguration, does three things. In this passage, we find that we have Jesus' identity confirmed. We have the centrality of the cross confirmed. And we also have the basis for our trust in Jesus. So first of all, the transfiguration confirms Jesus' identity. The key to this passage are the words spoken by God the Father himself in verse 35. Did you see them there? This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Something similar had happened at Jesus' baptism, way back in chapter 3, verse 22 of Luke. At that stage, there was a voice that came from heaven saying, You are my son. Then, at Jesus' baptism, the voice addressed Jesus, not the disciples or the crowd. But this voice, this voice addresses Jesus' disciples. In this we see that God's unseen kingdom is a greater reality it's a greater reality and it confirms who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. Look with me again at verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. This man that the disciples have just recognised as king, unrecognised by the crowds, and who has just announced his crucifixion and suffering for all who follow him, <laughs> this one really is the glorious one. Notice a couple of things about those verses in 28 and 30 to 31 together. First, in this we have a demonstration that there really is an eternal kingdom. I mean, most of your colleagues and the rest of the people we spend our time with in the world don't believe this. They believe that the only things that exist are the things you can see and touch and hear. And that makes for them religion to be something like a private hobby. And that's what we will increasingly experience from our friends, our colleagues, our neighbours. They might find our faith interesting, but it's really irrelevant. And increasingly, we will find our friends and family and neighbours will find what we believe to be abhorrent and even offensive. And increasingly, they will find that this private hobby of ours causes us to think things that they think are horrible. They think that because they do not believe that there's an eternal kingdom. And so we often need to be reminded ourselves that there really is one, because we live in a world that doesn't believe that. And how generous is our Father in heaven, that for our sake, these disciples, through their very human senses, had an experience of that greater reality. 
you'll notice it's not just a future reality, but it's a reality that existed before our time. It will extend beyond our time, but it is true today. Friends, isn't it easy to forget? Isn't it easy to forget that Jesus, it's not that just Jesus was Lord, it's not It's not just that Jesus will be Lord, but Jesus is Lord. That is reality. Second, Jesus really is the divine king of the eternal kingdom. These great figures of the Old Testament who appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, both of those characters have something in common from the Old Testament. Both of them, Moses and Elijah, both went up a mountain to experience the the glory of God. Here, on a mountaintop, they find themselves again in glory, and who is it that they are meeting with? Whose glorious presence do they experience? The presence of Jesus. Jesus is himself the God of glory, the King of heaven. Isn't that exactly what God the Father says in verse 35? This is my Son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Who is the Son? Well, you might remember Psalm 2, the Psalm of King David, who pointed to a greater king who would follow him. He says in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Here God proclaims Jesus, this one who is glorified on that mountaintop, really is the king of the kingdom. And there is something else about listening to him that connects him to Moses as well. But we're going to get to that a little bit later. But there's a third little point under the title of Jesus' identity. Yes, there's a kingdom. Yes, Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And third, God's people inhabit God's kingdom. Moses and Elijah are there in glorious splendor. Two men from different points of Israel's history, both long dead, but in Jesus' glory they appear together. God's people residing in God's glorious kingdom in the present, even though they are long dead. That's an extraordinary thing about this appearance. And yet they're able to talk about an event that is going to be the key event for the fulfilment of Jesus' kingdom being revealed here on earth. And so we get on to the second point, really, which is that the transfiguration that we're looking at today explains the meaning of the cross. In verse 31, we have a very interesting word. Um, It's one of the things that uh, knowing the original language helps us to spot. Uh, Let me go through verse 30 with you. Two men, Moses and Elijah, verse 31, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his, well, in your translation, it probably says departure, but the word that's used there is his exodus his exodus, which he was going to bring to fulfilment in Jerusalem. 
His exodus and how it was going to be accomplished was going to be fulfilled at Jerusalem. Just look back at verse 22 for a second. Notice how Jesus keeps on using the word must about what he is going to experience. He must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders. He must be killed. On the third day, he must be raised to life. If we were looking at Mark's account, Peter then opposes those ideas and Jesus rebukes him because Peter doesn't understand the purpose of the cross. The transfiguration teaches the meaning of the cross of Christ. It's very significant that it is Moses and Elijah who turn up because they represent the two major sections of the Old Testament, the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. But Luke tells us clearly that the reason they've appeared is to speak with Jesus about his exodus, a new exodus and a new sacrifice. Moses and Elijah were involved in exodus events that were involved that involved sacrifice. Moses had been the one that God had chosen to lead through the first exodus. Central to that event was the Passover lamb, who was sacrificed for every family. An event remembered at the beginning of the Jewish New Year, even today, as an annual feast. It's a feast reminding them year after year that their exodus was given to them. That death passed over them because of the blood of that sacrificed lamb. And they're looking forward to the day when the perfect lamb would be sacrificed for the rebellion of the whole world. Not an animal, but a perfect sinless man who would offer his perfect sinless life in place of our lives. The lamb of God who bears away the sins of the world. Moses' presence reminds us of that first exodus and Passover sacrifice. Elijah Elijah offered a sacrifice on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings chapter 18, fire fell on Elijah's sacrifice as a sign of God's approval of Elijah's biblical method of approaching God. The prophets of Baal, against whom there was this competition going, they'd been chanting and cutting themselves and working themselves into a frenzy to try and get their, the attention of their God. But Elijah, simply on the basis of Scripture, came before God and asked that his name be shown to be the great name above all, and fire fell upon Elijah's sacrifice on an altar of twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel. This was the nation coming back to God as God required. That's what's happening in that account of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's like another exodus for the people in that time. Those events in Moses and Elijah's time were pointing toward a greater and eternal exodus they speak of now in the transfiguration with Jesus. Because as Jesus dies on the cross in Jerusalem, his departure from this world will open the door of the kingdom of heaven to invade the world as it never has done before. Jesus is going to bring about a new exodus, a new people of God from every nation. He will turn the hearts of men back to him so that they cry, The Lord, he is God. And that is the meaning of the cross that Jesus discusses with Moses and Elijah here. A new exodus 
with a new atoning sacrifice that is perfect. When those disciples hear Jesus' words predicting his crucifixion, they may have thought he was talking about a great failure. That's how the world would have seen it. That's what how the Romans designed crucifixion to be. It was to hold people up for all to see that they were a failure before the great power of Rome. But Jesus, Jesus' crucifixion is a new exodus sacrifice and it accomplishes, you'll see the word verse 31, he fulfills a great triumph in Jerusalem. When ordinary people die, you don't talk about them accomplishing or fulfilling their death, do you? But that was what Moses and Elijah spoke with Jesus about. Jesus' death as an accomplishment, as a fulfilment. Dear friends, the crucifixion to which Jesus is setting his face in Jerusalem is not a failure, but the entire purpose, the accomplishment, the fulfilment of his coming, the fulfilment indeed of all history. We also learn from this that God is the God of the unexpected. He he does things in ways that are not like our ways. The three disciples... And we who see this event through their eyes in this narrative are also to be reminded that God is a God who does things differently to the way we do. And that links to the one, the, the moment in this we, we, that we might call Peter's head-slapping moment. <laughs> you know, that, that thing that, that when you look back on it, you say, I cannot believe what I just said when I was in that situation. And you sort of slap your head in shame. As the three men, verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. I mean, he really couldn't have got it more wrong. Peter's, Peter's here having a taste of God's glorious kingdom expressed on earth. And he wants it to continue. Oh, of course, wouldn't you, if you'd been there, want that experience to continue? But he hasn't understood the necessity of the sacrifice that Jesus has spoken of in order for his kingdom to come and to be populated. Peter's seeing God's glory and the voice says what what seems best to him. And so set up a camp so you can remain in that glory. But Peter's action is answered by God himself. Verse 35, not to do, not do what comes into your own head. That's not what Peter's supposed to do. What is he supposed to do? He is to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus who's just told you that the cross must occur. Friends, I think we need to do the same as Peter. Isn't it true that the voice that we're most likely to listen to is our own ideas? And we need instead to see who Jesus is and listen to him instead. Not focus on what we want him to do for us, but hear what he has come to accomplish by his exodus, by his death. This is my son whom I have chosen Listen to him. In this period of Lent leading up to Easter, let's spend time listening to him, what he says to us about us. 
Listen to what he says to us about who he is. Listen to God the Father himself. This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. Third, the transfiguration provides a basis for our faith. Verse 34, while he was still speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And they were afraid, and as they entered the cloud, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. If you've got your Bibles there, maybe you would turn with me to the letter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. And what we find there is Peter's own words on what that event, what the event of the transfiguration had on him. When he remembered that, and he's writing to another group of Christians after Jesus' death and resurrection, what did he think was important? What did he learn from that experience of the transfiguration? The second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. Peter said, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were there, on, were there with him on the sacred mountain. Friends, why do we Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God? We believe it on the basis of the eyewitness testimony of the apostles written down for us in the documents we now call the New Testament. What they saw and heard is enough for our faith, our trust and our dependence on Jesus. Notice Peter talks about what he saw. There's something visual about his experience. The power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's speaking of, in uh, verse 16, Jesus' second coming. And what he's, per- he's telling people about what is absolutely certain to happen. Peter says what he and the other two saw at Jesus' transfiguration convinced them of Jesus' kingly identity and purpose. The purpose of the cross, the fulfilment in the resurrection in the resurrection, and that means that his glorious return as judge is certain. Peter says, We saw it. We saw his glory. Not speculation, not made up, but we actually saw it. The second thing as a foundation is what he heard. Verse eighteen We heard, we ourselves heard the voice, he says. Now, we Christians, we believe not because of a manufactured idea, but we, we believe because of what the apostles saw with their eyes was explained by God's very voice and the apostles heard with their own ears. Jesus' identity is confirmed by what those apostles saw and by what they heard. This is why in verse 19 he says, And we have the word of the, of the prophets made more certain, And you would do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is what we need to hear, just as much as they needed it. This is my son. If this is my son, says the father, then listen to him. 
This is what dispels fear as we enter the cloud of God's presence. And that is why Peter says in 2 Peter 1 verse 19 that we should listen to this testimony because it is the only light shining in the darkness of the world. One day the dawn's going to come. The morning star will rise in your hearts, he says. One day you will see Christ and you will be like him. And there will and there will be for you a fullness of the life of Christ. Oh, but not in this age. And until that day dawns, there's only one light. And it is not inside of us, but it is testified to in the book we call the Bible, which is God's word to us. It's not about my imagination, about what I think God might be saying to me. No, it is the words of those who were with Jesus, even on the mountain and saw his glory. And the one this book speaks of, all the way through, from beginning to end, is all about Jesus. How do we know what God is saying to us right now today? Well, we need to listen to him, to Jesus, the King. That phrase we've kept on coming back to, listen to him. If we turned back to Deuteronomy, back in the Old Testament, there we would find Moses' sermons to the people just as they're about to enter the promised land after the 40 years of wandering in the desert. He says something that Israel were meant to remember. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 14, The nations you will dispossess, he says to Israel, about to enter into the land, Listen to those who practice sorcery and divination. But as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, said Moses, among your brothers. You must listen to him. Recognize those words? For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb, that is Sinai, the mountain on which God came down in a cloud. Does that remind you of anything? This is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see his great fire any more, or we'll die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. Did that remind you of some of the words in this passage about the transfiguration? At the very end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 34, verse 10, we read this. Since then, no prophet had arisen in Israel like Moses, who the Lord knew face to face who did all those miraculous signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials in the whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. So for years and years the people were looking for another prophet like Moses, one who knew the Lord as a, a person knows another face to face, one who can enter into God's glory who does miraculous signs and wonders, who shows the mighty power and awesome deeds of God himself to the people. But Jesus, as Luke has recorded for us, 
What does he do? He feeds a multitude in the desert. He stills the raging sea. He sends out emissaries of judgment to those who have hard hearts. In the passage we're looking at today about the transfiguration, as Luke records it, Luke is recording God saying to the disciples that the one he promised Moses would come has come. He is there and he should be the one they listen to. God says to them, listen to him. So in this passage of the transfiguration, we find that God himself confirms Jesus' identity. We find an explanation of the cross as the means by which the greater exodus is provided for people of all nations. And it provides us the basis for our faith. What is it? Jesus' words. So we should listen to him. Thank you for listening to the recording of the Dublin Bible Talks. You can join us in real time on Wednesdays at 1pm Dublin time on Zoom, bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks.